0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Want to listen to You Must Remember This without ads? Now you can when you subscribe to our new premium offerings on Apple Podcasts and Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Karina Longworth or open You Must Remember This on Apple Podcasts to learn more just welcome to another episode of you must remember this the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century I'm your host Karina longworth and this is part 20 of our ongoing series erotic 90s Goodbye, 264 just sex, David. Just sex, not love, just sex. And sex just isn't cool without condoms for protection. All right. You're a hooker. Sex. He talked about pornographic materials. Sex. He gave me a lot of pleasure. So we can show the sex act all over the place. Sex I have seen one or two things in my life, but never... Never anything like this. Our story is almost over. So for a brief moment, I'd like to go back to the beginning. Here is a clip from the very first episode of Erotic Eighties. Terry Southern, who co-scripted Stanley Kubrick's 1964 film, Dr. Strangelove, used to tell a story about a night from around that time when the two were at a party and somebody put on a hardcore porn film. Southern recalled that Kubrick was moved by the film to muse aloud on a near future in which explicit sex could be integrated into mainstream conventional Hollywood narratives. Wouldn't it be interesting, Kubrick said, if one day someone who was an artist would do that? using really beautiful actors and good equipment. Sometime in the next couple of years, Southern tried to convince Kubrick that the future was now, that with the production code that regulated sexual content in movies dying a slow death, they could and should make a movie with beautiful actors and good equipment and real sex. Kubrick ultimately demurred, most accounts have him putting the onus on his wife Christiane, who supposedly said she'd leave him if he tried such a thing. And Southern instead published a novel in 1970 called *Blue Movie*, which brought to life the pornified future of Hollywood that he and Kubrick had imagined, while skewering the hypocrisy and peccadillos of an industry run by men who know it's not in their best interest to portray the depravity of their actual sex lives on screen. And Kubrick instead made A Clockwork Orange, which goes about as far as a film could go in exploring sexual depravity without including actual hardcore sex. The future Kubrick mused about in 1964 never fully came to fruition. Though some narrative films containing real sex would make it to theaters, these were largely European, and Hollywood never officially went there. By 1999, when Kubrick was forced to obscure simulated orgy scenes in his last movie, Eyes Wide Shut, the extra-wide semi-truck of culture had begun the slow process of doing a 180. 180. Eyes Wide Shut was probably the last mainstream Hollywood film about sex of the millennium. When I wrote those words in January 2022, I knew I wanted to end this project by talking about Kubrick's last film. And though much else has changed about how I've thought about erotic 80s and erotic 90s over the two years that I've been working on these seasons... I still believe that Eyes Wide Shut marked the end of something. And that something was not, as many joked not long after, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman's marriage. It was also not a thing that started in the 80s. Although, as I've now made more than 30 podcast episodes explaining, in terms of Hollywood movies, it did come to fruition in the 80s and 90s. What I think Eyes Wide Shut marks the end of is the cultural relevancy of the sexual revolution as experienced by people who lived through the 1960s and 70s. Erratic 80s began in the 60s and 70s because in my research, it seemed clear to me that Hollywood's engagement with sex on film during the 80s took place in the shadow of the films released after 1968, when the rating system was created to respond to evidence that there were commercial and artistic dividends to be reaped by pushing the limits of sexual content on screen. Films like 10, American Gigolo, Body Heat, and Body Double were all made possible by the successes of films like Last Tango in Paris and Midnight Cowboy. They were also influenced by the tastes and experiences of their makers men who had lived through the sexual revolution and were aware of the social and sexual politics of that revolution and its fallout and responses. As we've worked through the 90s, we've watched the ebb and flow of sexual politics as they were reflected in selected Hollywood movies. And we've also watched the industry change as more and more time passed following the new Hollywood auteur wave that coincided with the sexual revolution. The films mentioned above were all extraordinarily personal and artistically distinct compared to many hits of the 90s, such as Pretty Woman, Basic Instinct, Indecent Proposal and Disclosure, which were all more engaged with the zeitgeist of their particular moment in terms of how heterosexual men and women relate to one another than our most comparable hits of today. Hollywood is obviously always looking backward. The industry is constantly mining its own past for ideas as to how to make money in the future. But because almost all talent has generally been considered disposable, rarely is a conceptual thread drawn across more than 30 years of time by a single filmmaker. But Stanley Kubrick, of course, was an exception to most rules. Part of Kubrick's desire to make a blue movie in the 60s still lingered into the 1990s, when he finally made Eyes Wide Shut. But Kubrick was drawn to that film's source material long before the pill or the X rating. That source material, the 1926 novel Trom Novelle by Alfred Schnitzler, was sent in Vienna in the early 20th century and was a product of the decadent movement. Schnitzler's work explored the increased sexual freedom of a time when Austria, like Weimar Berlin, was scarred by World War I and shot through with a fear of end times energy. Roberta Smith, in a 2006 review of a show of German photographs from the 1920s at the Met, wrote that it documented faces that are watching the world as it slides from one cataclysm to the next. But Schnitzler was also friendly with Freud, and with Tromneville, he evoked a portrait of sexuality that was deeply tied to the subconscious. As Kubrick explained it to critic Michel Simon in 1972, It explores the sexual ambivalence of a happy marriage, and it tries to equate the importance of sexual dreams and might-have-beens with reality. 1972 was right in the middle of the sexual revolution, and though Kubrick had abandoned the idea of making a blue movie with Terry Southern by this point, and the X-rated Midnight Cowboy had already won Best Picture at the Oscars, the race was on to produce the picture that the creation of the X rating seemed to beg for, a film depicting realistic sex involving at least one major movie star. In October of that year, Bernardo Bertolucci would cross the finish line first with the debut of Last Tango in Paris. But Bertolucci was 13 years younger than Kubrick, and they related to the sexual revolution differently like a lot of people of my generation. I think Stanley felt he missed the sexual revolution," said Frederick Raphael after collaborating with Kubrick on the screenplay for Eyes Wide Shut. We all felt like we were born too early or too late for the orgy. And Stanley was curious about that. Eyes Wide Shut is literally about a guy who arrives late for an orgy. But the sexual revolution of the mind and of most media coverage is different from how human beings experience reality. And Eyes Wide Shut is not just about being too late for this revolution. It's about the revolution's failure to change some fundamental ways in which men think about sex and think about women. As Raphael said in a different interview, We all pretend we're very candid today about sex when we're really not. Men are still embarrassed at the independent sexuality of women. They can't believe that they have the same sexual thoughts as us. It both excites and alarms them. Eyes Wide Shut dramatizes a man's attempt to use sexual excitement to cover up the alarm. But like a bad dream, his horror over his newfound knowledge of his wife's inner sexual life keeps returning. Its territory was summed up by Kubrick's friend and Full Metal Jacket collaborator Michael Hare shortly after Kubrick died. Quote, as a not-so-pure product of the 60s, I've often wondered whether over the long run, the sexual freedom of those years didn't numb more genitals than it inflamed more than all the prohibitions of all the decades that went before. The actual realization, after so much collective longing, of a genuine liberation of erotic impulse and expression, pumped a marvelous vitality into the culture. Many modes and views that were allegedly undreamed of a generation before, or even a year before, were out there frolicking in the open air, swimming naked in the mainstream, visible, televised, explicit, rampant. But what if freedom isn't just another word for nothing left to lose, but something that's lost whenever you mistake a carnal matter for a spiritual matter? If there was a liberation 30 years ago, why now all this confusion, rancor, pornography? Well, maybe because as we keep learning in Hollywood history, everything is elliptical. And so in 1999, at the end of the century and the end of his life, Stanley Kubrick finally makes a movie featuring explicit sex and major movie stars. And it essentially ends the dream that there could be commercial viability for Hollywood movies that take adults and their sex lives seriously. Today, we are going to talk about Eyes Wide Shut's long, mysterious production, Kubrick's death, and its impact on how the film was perceived before anyone had seen it. There is so much to say about this film that it can't all fit into one episode. So we'll conclude the Eyes Wide Shut story and Erotic 90s next week. Join us, won't you? for part 20 of Erotic 90s. Eyes Wide Shut takes place in late 20th century New York, a time of cell phones the size of a Coke can, and TVs the size of a hat box on kitchen counters. The first image of the film is of Nicole Kidman, shot from behind, wriggling out of a black cocktail dress, under which she is wearing nothing. This shot is inserted into the opening credits, in between Stanley Kubrick's name and the title of the movie. But when the story starts seconds later, she is wearing a different black cocktail dress. The first dress is sexier, backless, sleeveless, more current to late 90s fashion. When we see her next, sitting on a toilet while rushing to get ready for a party, the dress she's wearing feels more old fashioned. It's long sleeved, low cut in the front and back, but with a high empire waist. When we first see her, Is she rejecting a possible outfit for the night? And is the second dress the more demure choice she decides to go with? Or is the first image from a different night, a memory, a dream? Less than two minutes of screen time has elapsed and we're already questioning reality. Kidman and Cruz play Alice and Bill, a married couple in their thirties with a seven-year-old daughter. That night, they go to a glamorous Christmas party at the opulent mansion of Victor Ziegler, played by Sidney Pollack. From the dance floor, Bill realizes that the piano player is an old friend from medical school, Nick Nightingale, played by Todd Field, best known recently as the writer-director of Tar. Alice goes to the restroom while Nick and Bill catch up, and they get separated for the rest of the party. Bill finds himself the object of attention of two young models, and Alice ends up dancing with a lusty, elegant Hungarian silver fox. Kubrick intercuts the adventures of husband and wife as they are both propositioned for sex by these strangers. Alice's flirtation takes the form of a debate about marriage. Don't you think one of the charms of marriage is that it makes deception? A necessity for both parties <laughs> may I ask why a beautiful woman who could have any man in this room wants to be married why wouldn't she is it as bad as that As good as that Later, he tells her women used to get married so they could lose their virginity and then have true sexual freedom. Kubrick then cuts to the models, flanking Bill and leading him through the party. (laughs) Ladies, where exactly are we going? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Where the rainbow ends. Where the rainbow ends. Don't you want to go where the rainbow ends? Well, now that (laughs) depends where that is. Well, let's find out. Excuse me, ladies. Sorry, Dr. Harford. Sorry to interrupt. I wonder if you could come with me for a moment. Something for Mr. Ziegler? Oh, uh, fine. To be continued? This is the first example of the explicitly dreamlike structure to Bill's story in which he keeps being on the verge of sexual adventure, but then he gets interrupted and usually is forced to face a cold reality. In this case, he is led upstairs to an insanely large bathroom that could only exist in a dream with a fireplace and tables and a desk in it as well as a velvet couch opposite the toilet and bidet. On that couch, a naked woman is passed out. She's Mandy, the consort of Ziegler, who, as he pulls up his suspenders, tells Bill that he believes she overdosed on a speedball. Bill revives Mandy, and when he and Alice return home, we see the scene that was used as the controversial teaser for the movie. Cruz and Kidman, naked, embracing in front of the mirror as the Chris Isaac single, Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing, plays on the soundtrack. Instead of focusing on her husband, Alice looks at her own reflection in the mirror. We've now seen some of the differences between husband and wife in terms of how they feel about sex inside and outside of marriage. Alice seems to see her marriage as a solid container inside of which she can safely enjoy a flirtation and then go home and have sex with her husband, possibly with her mind on something or someone else. We don't get an equivalent sense of Bill's thoughts and feelings, but he seems to be on the precipice of accepting the invitation from the models before he is interrupted. Nothing of what Kubrick shows us of the marital sex scene suggests that his attention is elsewhere. As often occurs in Eyes Wide Shut, something happens, and then the characters talk about the thing that happened in a way that reframes it. So a few scenes later, Alice and Bill smoke a joint in bed, and the wife asks the husband if, when he disappeared from the party, he had gone to have sex with those two women. He tells her no, and then says he saw Alice dancing with the Hungarian. Anyway, who's the guy you were dancing with? <laughs> <laughs> A friend of the Zigglers. <laughs> what did he want? What did he want? Um, what did he want? Mm, sex. Oh, upstairs. <laughs> then and there. <laughs> Is that all? Yeah. Yeah, that was all. Just wanted to fuck my wife. <laughs> That's right i guess that's understandable understandable Mm. because you are a very very beautiful woman Whoa. whoa 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 wait so because i'm a beautiful woman the only reason any man ever wants to talk to me is because he wants to fuck me? Is that what you're saying? Well, I don't think it's quite that black and white, but, but I think we both know what men are like. Bill seems very confident in what men are like, and later in the conversation, when Alice suggests his female patient's might be attracted to him when he's examining their breasts, he is equally confident in his knowledge of what women are like. Women don't. They basically just don't think like that. Millions of years of evolution, right? Right? Men have to stick it in every place they can. But for women, women it is just about security and commitment and uh, whatever the fuck else. A little oversimplified, Alice, but yes, something like that. If you men only knew. I'll tell you what I do know is you got a little stoned tonight. You've been trying to pick a fight with me, and now you're trying to make me jealous. But you're not the jealous type, are you? No, I'm not. You've never been jealous about me, have you? No, I haven't. And why haven't you ever been jealous about me? Well, I don't know, Alice. Maybe because you're my wife. Maybe because you're the mother of my child, and I know you would never be unfaithful to me. You are very, very sure of yourself, aren't you? No, I'm sure of you. Do you think that's funny? Once Alice stops laughing at this, she explains why she finds this so funny. She tells him about a naval officer who she exchanged a glance with at a hotel when they were on a family vacation the previous summer. She didn't talk to this man, and yet she couldn't get him out of her mind. That- Afternoon Helena went to the movies With her friend And You and I Made love <sighs> And We Made plans about her future And We talked about Helena And yes no time was he ever out of my mind. And I thought if he wanted me even if it was only for one night I was ready to give up everything. You. Helena. My whole fucking future. Everything. For many viewers, this scene was the most compelling in the movie and constituted the best screen acting Nicole Kidman had done to that point. I saw Eyes Wide Shut in the theater in 1999, and I've seen it probably a dozen times since, watching it recently as a middle-aged married person and as a fan of Tom Cruise lamenting the fact that lately he's seemed more interested in doing stunts than in playing characters who would challenge his image of himself as an impenetrable hero. I was stunned by Cruz's performance in this scene. When Kubrick's camera moves in on him as he listens to his wife demolish his idea of who she is and who he is and of the givens men and women can trust about one another, my heart starts to hurt. Talk about Hollywood being elliptical. Tom Cruise had been a movie star for about a decade and a half in 1999, since Risky Business in 1983. Since that film, which was about America's conflation of sexual power with fiscal power, Cruise had not exactly made a living playing powerlessness. In Born on the Fourth of July, Cruise showed much vulnerability playing disabled Vietnam vet Ron Kovic although that film was in large part about Kovic overcoming hardship and disillusionment to feel empowered as an activist. But what Cruz is doing in Eyes Wide Shut was totally different, in part because the stakes were so low and so intimate. As this scene is happening, Bill is still financially comfortable, physically practically perfect, and as we'll see throughout the rest of the film, desired by both women and men. And as a doctor, he's godlike in his ability to bring someone like Mandy back to life from the brink of death. But his sense of self is absolutely destroyed by the idea that his wife fantasizes about having sex with other men. The dreamlike structure continues. This nightmare is interrupted when the phone rings and Bill learns that a patient has died he has to go console the surviving daughter. And so he leaves home and embarks on an all-night odyssey, seeking some solve for the wounds inflicted by Alice's confession. At the house of the dead patient, the grief-stricken daughter comes on to Bill and in an echo of what Alice just told him, claims she would give up her fiance for a chance to sleep with the doctor. This dream of desire is interrupted by the arrival of the fiance. In a Kubrickian touch of dark comedy, this all happens in the same room where the corpse lies in bed. From there, Bill wanders the streets of Greenwich Village, festering over his wife's unbeknownst to him in her life. He's already feeling humiliated, and then he's pushed into a parked car and gay-bashed by a bunch of drunk frat boys. Skip ahead about 35 seconds if you don't want to hear homophobic dialogue. Hey, 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 what team's this switch hitter playing for? Looks like the pink team. Huh? Faggot. Uh-huh. <laughs> faggot? <laughs> Merry Christmas, Mary. Hey, my brothers are back there. They prime cut of meat, pig. You want to take a ride in this fight? Tell you stupid faggot. <laughs> it's like got a moon puncher man, going on here, huh? You should standing so close. Get out of here, I man. got dumps that are bigger than you. Come oh, on, macho man. man. Oh. Come on, macho man. You want a piece of this, baby? An exit only, honey. Go back to San Francisco where you belong, man. I played this clip because, aside from the garden-variety homophobia, some of the language used seems so specific to Tom Cruise and so designed to humiliate not just the character he's playing, but the actor playing him. Although this was two years before Cruise would sue a gay porn star for claiming they had had an affair, Cruise's sexuality had been the subject of rumors at least since the homoerotic Top Gun. The mob's specific reference to Bill's height is another personal dig that applies to the actor, who was starring in this film alongside his real-life wife who towered over him in heels, and he was also visibly shorter than the two models from the party scene. When they call him a switch hitter, it seems to imply that Bill's actual sexuality is dualistic, and when they mockingly call him macho man, they're not just saying he's queer, but deficient in masculinity. Which is exactly how Bill feels before he encounters these assholes. He's been kicked in the balls while he's down. No wonder, when he turns a corner and bumps into a pretty young sex worker played by Vanessa Shaw, he accepts her invitation for a date. But Bill can't consummate that sure thing. A call from Alice makes him feel guilty enough to leave the hooker's apartment but not remorseful enough to give up his search for something that will make him feel better. He ends up wandering into the jazz club where Nick Nightingale, the piano player from the opening party, is doing a gig. And, he tells Bill, he has another gig later that night. A recurring gig, but a mysterious one. I play blindfolded. (laughs) What? I play blindfolded. <laughs> You're putting me on. No, it's true. And the last time, the blindfold wasn't on so well. <laughs> oh, man. Bill, I have seen one or two things in my life, but never. Never anything like this. And never such women. After much cajoling from Bill, Nick gives him the address to a decadent ritual orgy. But in order to fit in, Bill needs to wear a mask, a tux, and a cloak, which leads to what I think is Eyes Wide Shut's least successful scene/slash subplot involving a costume shop where the proprietor's teenage daughter, played by Lili Sobieski, is apparently pimped out by her father to two Japanese men. Sobieski, who was 14 when she filmed this part, in which she wears a bra and panties in both of her scenes, was 16 when a highly airbrushed photo of her in a tight camisole was put on the cover of men's magazine Details to promote the movie. When she retired from acting 17 years later to focus on raising her two kids and making visual art, she said, 90% of acting roles involve so much sexual stuff with other people, and I don't want to do that. Anyway, Bill finally gets to the orgy, which is preceded by a ritual ceremony involving women wearing masks, headdresses, and thong panties, kneeling in a circle as a crowd of men in cloaks and masks gather around. Some of the women kiss each other with their masks on, an absurd image and a clue to the dry comedy that underlies the portentous seriousness of the scene. Bill's mask is, as befits the character, expressionless, but many of the other masks are frozen in a laugh, a yawn, or a scream. Bill wanders through the rooms of this mega mansion, watching other people fuck in various combinations. A masked woman in a black feathered headdress recognizes him and warns him to leave. Then she is pulled away. Later, as another woman is propositioning Bill, the original woman comes back, pulls him away and tells him, no, seriously, he needs to leave. He tries to pull off her mask, but can't. And then he is approached by a man in a gold mask and pulled into a kind of ritual tribunal, presided over by a person in a gold mask and red cloak. You will kindly remove your mask. Now, get undressed. Get undressed? Remove your clothes. Gentlemen. Please Uh... remove your clothes, or would you like us to do it for you? Stop. (sighs) Let him go. Take me. I am ready to redeem him. That's the woman in the feathered headdress again. She offers herself up for whatever punishment there might be so that Bill will be allowed to leave unscathed. He is still warned that if he tells anyone about any of this, there will be, quote-unquote, dire consequences. As we'll see later, the orgy scene made some critics roll their eyes. In The New Yorker, David Denby called it the most pompous orgy in the history of movies, as though there had been so many orgies in mainstream movies to compare it to. And I think the evocation of dire consequences has a lot to do with that. After all, we've seen everything that Bill has seen, and that is... Frankly, not much. Some rituals that we don't understand, some people wearing masks, fucking mechanically, largely in long shots and choreographed carefully so that we don't see any nether regions. We have not seen or been able to recognize anyone's identity. What would he even tell anyone? Based on Eyes Wide Shut's marketing, critics and audiences were expecting something unspeakable involving the most famous couple in the world at that point. Instead, they got a masked and unrecognizable Tom Cruise playing a character whose masculinity has been reduced to dregs, drifting at a sleepwalkers pace through an orgy in which he does not participate, only to be warned that what has happened here is a matter of life and death. Ha ha, right? But that's the point. At the midpoint of this movie, its crux, Eyes Wide Shut becomes its most dreamlike with this sequence that, to borrow the title of Kubrick's first film, mixes fear and desire in a way that most of us only experience in dreams. The sex that might make him feel better about himself given the humiliation he walked in with, or let's be honest, might have ultimately made him feel even worse, remains out of reach. And then in a classic nightmare scenario, he is forced to reveal his true self and is on the verge of having to reveal his body before a last minute reprieve. Kubrick was a master of lighting and cinematography. He knew exactly what he wanted, would push technicians to try things that they thought were impossible or wouldn't work. And he was usually right. The bookending images of the orgy sequence, involving the red cloaked figure at the center of the circle, features the most direct, brightest light in the whole movie. The pot-smoking naval officer confession scene takes place in a bedroom that's all warm tones, from the soft lamp lighting to the red curtains and textiles on the bed, to the rosy flesh of Kidman's exposed skin but in almost every shot of the actress, you can also see bright blue cool light coming from the window. With the exception of the Christmas lights and decorations visible in most locations, the color palette of Eyes Wide Shut is predominantly red and blue. When Bill is plagued by visions of his wife in bed with the Naval officer, as he often is throughout the film, the images are in black and white tinted blue. Nearly every female in the film with a significant role has red or reddish hair. This may be part of the confusion Bill and the audience experience between Mandy, the woman who overdosed at Ziegler's party at the beginning of the film, and the woman in the headdress who warns Bill to leave the orgy, even though they are played by two different actresses. Three, if you count Kate Blanchett, whose voice was dubbed in for Abigail Good, whose body we see below the mask and headdress. The blue outside world threatens to encroach on the warm space of the marital bedroom, but later in the film, red will switch connotations. At the orgy, the frightening authority figure who unmasks Bill and who was played by Leon Vitali, Lord Bullington from Barry Lyndon, who became Kubrick's longtime assistant, is cloaked in red and, in fact, is named in the credits only as Red Cloak. When Bill gets home from the orgy, his bedroom is no longer warm and red. It's full of harsh blue light. Though Bill carefully hides the bag containing his costume before he comes to bed, he and Alice can't keep the outside world out. She is laughing in her sleep when he comes in, and he wakes her up, telling her, disingenuously, that he was worried she was having a nightmare. Half asleep and now on the verge of tears, she explains that in her dream, the two of them were naked and ashamed, and she thought it was his fault. He left to find them clothes, and she felt better, but then the naval officer showed up, saw her naked body, and laughed at her. After telling this part, she cries. Bill eggs her on to tell him more. She embraces him while tearfully narrating the rest of her dream. he, uh, he was kissing me. And then then we were making love. <sighs> and there were all these other people around us, hundreds of them everywhere, and everyone was fucking. <laughs> and then I... <laughs> I was fucking other men. So many. I, <laughs> I don't know how many I was with. i knew you could see me in the arms of all these men just just fucking all these men and i i wanted to make fun of you to laugh in your face <laughs> and so i laughed as loud as i could <gasps> and that must have been when he woke me up. Again, as good as Kidman is at performing this monologue, Cruz is equally good listening to it and conveying the terror that Bill feels learning for the first time what's going on inside of his wife and communicating on his face his jealousy, not just because she fantasizes about having so much sex with so many other men, but because he can't seem to have a secret life of his own. He's like a hacky joke about the one guy who can't get laid at the orgy, except it's a joke played straight. As the film continues on for another full hour, Bill retraces his steps from the night before, as if trying to rejoin a dream that was interrupted in progress. Every attempt to re-engage a missed sexual opportunity is cock-blocked. Every search for answers results in information he didn't want to know. His impotence, in every sense of the word, only gets worse. Another scene that flummoxed critics occurs late in the film when Victor Ziegler calls Bill to his house to confront him over his presence at the orgy and his persistence in asking questions about that night and what happened to the woman who stepped in to save him. Some critics complain that this scene explained too much, wrapping the film's mysteries in a too tight bow. But Ziegler walks a very fine line in this scene. He needs to tell Bill something so that he'll stop asking questions. But as a member of the debauched super elite, he clearly has a lot to hide and protect. And the last thing he's going to do is give this naive, middle-class doctor the real story. First, Ziegler tells Bill that the men at the orgy were so powerful that he doesn't want to know their names. Then he says all of the intimidation was a charade, meant to scare Bill from telling anyone what he had seen. The day after the orgy, Mandy, the girl who overdosed in Ziegler's bathroom at the beginning of the movie, was found dead. Bill has become convinced this was the woman from the orgy, and Ziegler lets him think that, while at the same time downplaying that there were any mortal consequences of her actions that night. I saw her body in the morgue. Was she... Was she the woman at the party? Yes. She was. Victor, the woman lying dead in the morgue was the woman at the party. Yes. Well, Victor, maybe I'm missing something here. You called it a fake, a charade. Do you mind telling me what kind of fucking charade ends with somebody turning up dead? Okay, bill, let's 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 cut the bullshit. All right? You've been way out of your depth for the last twenty four hours. You want to know what kind of a charade? I'll tell you exactly what kind. That whole play-acted, take-me, phony sacrifice that you've been jerking yourself off with had absolutely nothing to do with her real death. Nothing happened to her after you left that party that hadn't happened to her before. She got her brains fucked out, period. When they took her home, she was, she was just fine. And the rest of it is right there in the paper. She was a junkie, she OD'd. There was nothing suspicious. Her door was locked from the inside. The police are happy. End of the story. Come on. It was always going to be just a matter of time with her. Remember? You told her so yourself. You remember the, the one with the great tits who OD'd in my bathroom? We don't know for sure if Kubrick meant for the audience to believe that the woman who OD'd at Ziegler's party and the woman at the orgy were the same woman but they are clearly cited as two different actresses and characters in the films and credits. Likely, this is more misdirection from Ziegler. He's thinking, if Bill thinks this woman is dead, he'll stop asking questions. In any case, the dehumanizing way Ziegler talks about Mandy, like she was a disposable sex object, with no acknowledgement that her drug addiction might have something to do with the way she's been exploited sexually, doesn't do anything to make Bill feel better. From there, he goes home and sees his mask from the orgy, which he thought he'd lost, sitting on his pillow in bed next to Alice. Now it's his turn to collapse into tears in bed and to make a confession. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'll tell you everything. Eyes Wide Shut's final scene consists of a conversation between Bill and Alice in a toy store where their daughter Helena is browsing for Christmas gifts. The irony of this setting as backdrop for the resolution of this couple's sexual problems is pure Kubrick, as is the last line of the exchange, the last word ever spoken in a Kubrick movie. The important thing is we're awake now and hopefully for a long time to come. Forever. Forever. Mm. Forever. Mm. Let's let's not use that word. Yeah. It frightens me. <laughs> but I do love you and you know there is something very important that we need to do as soon as possible what's that to paraphrase an oft-quoted and misquoted line from sci-fi writer Robert Heinlein, every generation thinks they invented sex. Obviously that's not the case, as Stanley Kubrick knew well. After all, his masterpiece amongst masterpieces, Barry Lyndon, is predicated on an act of mid-18th century horniness. Kubrick recognized something familiar in Trom stories of sexual fantasy and masked orgies when he first read it in the supposedly sexually repressed 1950s, when it was recommended to him by his second wife, Ruth Sabotka. It lingered with him over the years through his collaboration with Terry Southern and into the 70s, when he optioned the novel. And it was still with him in 1994, when he finally embarked on the adaptation. Kubrick moved to London to shoot Lolita and never left. After his experience on the shoot of Spartacus, which he was brought on to direct by star-slash-producer Kirk Douglas, Kubrick was determined to never again make a Hollywood movie in which he would have to cede total control. He made Dr. Strangelove for Columbia and 2001 for MGM, and then, beginning with A Clockwork Orange, he began a long partnership with Warner Brothers, where he was initially supported by exec John Kelly, who would become one of his best friends. Kubrick didn't fly and he never returned to the US. He and his wife Christiane lived on an estate outside London and that alone was mysterious to people in Hollywood. He had a reputation as a hermit, but some close to him said it was more complicated than that. The truth is he lived in a paradise, said Sidney Pollack. There wasn't any reason for him to go anywhere. It was a kind of a heaven. At his home, Kubrick had everything he needed, including separate studios for himself and his painter wife. He would see people, usually entertaining at home. When he wasn't in active production, he spent his time prodigiously reading. Every film from Lolita on was based on a book, and talking on the phone with friends all over the world. One friend described 1980 through 1983 as one extended phone conversation with Kubrick with interruptions. Kubrick would stew over potential movie ideas for decades. He once told an actor, the hardest thing in making a movie is to keep in the front of your consciousness your original response to the material because that's going to be the thing that will make the movie and the loss of that will break the movie. Staying excited about his source material was a foremost occupation of Kubrick's and one of the reasons he talked on the phone so much, bouncing ideas off of trusted friends in order to keep a conversation in his own mind fresh. In the 80s, when he was trying to figure out how to make Trom Novell on the back burner, he was also trying to figure out how to make a movie about the Holocaust, which he felt was too big a subject to fit into a conventional feature film. When he first met Michael Hare in 1980, he had two books messengered over to Hare, Tromnavel and The Destruction of the European Jews by Raoul Hilberg. Hare's first impression of Tromnavel was that it embodied, quote, the full, excruciating flowering of a voluptuous and self-consciously decadent time and place a shocking and dangerous story about sex and sexual obsession and the suffering of sex. In its pitiless view of love, marriage, and desire, made all the more disturbing by the suggestion that either all of it, or maybe some of it, or possibly none of it, is a dream. It intrudes on the concealed roots of Western erotic life like a laser, suggesting discreetly, from behind its dream cover, things that are seldom even privately acknowledged And never spoken of in daylight. Kubrick had, at some point, conceived this as a starring vehicle for Woody Allen. By the early 80s, when he began talking to Hare about it, he dreamed of casting Steve Martin. He'd loved The Jerk, Michael Hare explained. I know that his idea for it in those days was always a sex comedy, but with a wild and somber streak running through it. Now I think we were all too square to imagine what Stanley saw in Steve Martin. According to Todd Field, on set, Kubrick would sometimes break out into impressions of scenes from The Jerk. Quote, He thought that part where Steve Martin doesn't have any rhythm was just hysterical. By the mid-90s, Kubrick had decided that he wanted to cast an actual married couple as the couple in the film. Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman had met on the set of their first film together, Days of Thunder, and had married in 1990. At the time, Kidman was just beginning her Hollywood career after her breakout success in Dead Calm, directed by fellow Australian Philip Noyce. Cruise, in 1990, was a huge movie star, known for balancing accessible blockbusters like Top Gun and Cocktail with films that put his all-American looks and his willingness to challenge himself in the hands of auteurs like Martin Scorsese and Oliver Stone. Cruz recalled that he received a fax from Kubrick asking if he would be interested in working together. And then a few months later, another fax came in from Kubrick asking if Kidman would want to be involved too. He didn't even tell me what the movie was about, Cruz recalled, And I didn't ask. I was just hoping it wouldn't go away. The next step was a trip to the Kubrick house for dinner. As Cruz recalled, we spent six hours there relaxing, drinking wine. When we finally left at 1.30 in the morning, I remember saying to Nick, gee, I, I hope we didn't overstay our welcome. After decades of chewing over the source material, Kubrick ultimately enlisted Frederick Raphael to co-write the screenplay with him. Raphael wrote a whole book titled Eyes Wide Open about this collaboration, a book that was widely discredited by Kubrick's friends and family. As Cruz fumed to Roger Ebert, he wouldn't have written it if Stanley had been alive. Opportunistic, self-serving, inaccurate, I don't know that man at all and I've never met him. It's been interesting seeing how people have behaved afterward. In Raphael's book, the only mystery greater than why Kubrick thought Raphael was the right person for this adaptation is why Raphael said yes. The collaboration seems to have been unsatisfactory for both parties. Kubrick apparently wasn't fully confident in the script going into shooting. In 1996, he called Michael Hare. Hare was most famous as a war correspondent in Vietnam. He had brought him the source material that became Full Metal Jacket and written the script with Kubrick. But he had started as a film critic, replacing the great Manny Farber at the magazine, The New Leader. Now Kubrick asked, what do you charge these days for a wash and rinse? He told Hare that the script needed a little colloquializing. Hare couldn't drop everything for an open-ended engagement with Kubrick. I pictured myself chained to a table in his house, Hare later wrote. He had learned from experience. The more highly paid you were, or the closer to the actual shooting, the more enslaved you were likely to be. Cruz and Kidman would never use a word like enslaved to describe the years they spent with Kubrick working on Eyes Wide Shut but the media would because they were the most famous married actors in the world and because Kubrick was the most mysterious filmmaker. There was enormous media interest in this film from the point the trades announced the casting of the stars in 1995. For most of the next four years, most of the press had no solid information about what was happening on the set of the movie. No one who was not on set had read the script and screenwriter Raphael claimed that he wasn't allowed on the set. According to one source, Kubrick was so afraid there would be leaks from the set that he sometimes acted as the director of photography and lighting man so that he could be alone with the actors. That vacuum of fact was the perfect breeding ground for fiction. As Peter Bronstein put it in The Village Voice shortly before the movie opened, In the absence of any real information about the film's plot, production, or completion date, Eyes Wide Shut became the decade's most guessed about film, generating enough theory, conjecture, and apocrypha to rival alien abduction literature. The earliest stories about Eyes Wide Shut tried to justify the lack of information available about the movie. Kubrick, 67, has a unique deal with a major studio that guarantees absolutely no interference in any facet of his filmmaking, reported David Gritton in the LA Times in April 1996. Gritton added, this makes him an anomaly in an era when budgetary considerations and the perceived greater importance of marketing and advertising movies have encouraged studios to adopt a more hands-on approach to the work of even the most distinguished directors. He then quoted Julian Sr., a Warner Brothers executive based in London. He'll do his thing, and when the film's ready, when it's shot, edited, the music's put on, and there's about a week to go before release, then we'll probably get to see it. But not everyone was comfortable waiting for Kubrick to do his own thing at his own pace. In November 1996, Britain's The Observer ran a whole article about how no one from Warner Brothers or either of the major studios in London, Elstree and Pinewood, had any information about the shoot. Reporter Richard Brooks was left to quote John Baxter, who was promoting a book about Kubrick and who claimed, there are already rumors that Cruz is having problems rehearsing the sex scenes. He needs to loosen up more and Kubrick is getting him in the right mood with some specially commissioned erotic art. Here's a catalog of some other rumors about Eyes Wide Shut that were published by reputable publications over the next three years. Liz Smith in the LA Times, quote, they say that Tom Cruise, the world's biggest movie star, was required to do the same scene over and over again. Director Kubrick, famously persnickety, wasn't satisfied until the 93rd take. People Magazine, January 1997. Although everyone on the set had to swear an oath of secrecy, rumor has it that Cruz and Kidman play married shrinks, and in one scene, Tom wears a dress. In April of that year, New York Magazine reported that Harvey Keitel, originally cast as Ziegler, had been fired because he and Kubrick did not get along. Because Keitel had also been fired by Francis Ford Coppola from his Vietnam film, this was described as shades of apocalypse now. As the shoot stretched closer to the one year mark, London paper, The Independent, published some wild speculation about the content of the film. Quote, Warner will not comment on the roles that Cruz and Kidman are playing in the movie though it is widely believed their characters are a married couple, both psychiatrists, who have affairs with two of their clients, played by Jennifer Jason Leigh and, until he quit, Harvey Keitel. Kidman's character is also said to be a heroin addict. The studio has yet to comment on other reports that Kubrick also hired two British sex therapists, Wendy and Tony Duffield, to inject some zing into the love scenes between Cruz and Kidman. Six months later, the story about the Duffields was picked up by the US tabloids, Star and National Enquirer. According to Star, Kubrick hired the sex therapists at a rate of $3,000 a day because he was so, quote, exasperated that the married couple failed to produce any sparks in bed. Meanwhile, the Inquirer claimed that in the interest of authenticity, Cruz and Kidman immersed themselves into a real world of sex and drugs. When Warner Brothers announced that the stars plan to file a lawsuit, Inquirer editor David Perrell said, we vigorously defend our right to run stories that have not been filtered through their press machine." while star editor-in-chief Phil Bunton said he had a copy of the sex therapist's contract to work on the production, adding, I'll be amazed if it comes to trial. It didn't. Cruz and Kidman, who had already won a lawsuit against The Express for writing that their marriage was a sham, couldn't stop other publications from speculating about the content of the movie. In January, 1998, Entertainment Weekly mused about one rumor they had heard. Quote, Does Cruz actually appear as a transvestite? Obviously, in 1999, that would have been controversial enough. But to E.W., the real scandal was that Eyes Wide Shut had shocked for so long that it had kept Tom Cruise off the treadmill of Hollywood production. Quote, Cruz alone could have made three films at $20 million a pop in the time it's taken him to do this one. And it wasn't over yet. In April 1998, the New York Times reported that after 15 months of production, Cruz was being called in for reshoots, which would be significant given that Jennifer Jason Leigh, cast as the daughter of the dead man who propositions Bill, could not come back for reshoots because she was committed to David Cronenberg's existence. Beyond the shooting schedule, reporter Bernard Weinrob knew nothing about the content of the movie. Quote By some accounts, the movie, written by Mr. Kubrick and Frederick Raphael, is a psychosexual thriller about two psychiatrists, played by Mr. Cruz and his real life wife, Nicole Kidman. One studio executive said he believed the film involved a menage a trois. But the executives were obviously out of the loop because Weinrob also wrote that they had assumed the film had finally wrapped and were tentatively planning to release it in December. Privately, according to the reporter, one Warner Brothers executive called the agonizingly long production a nightmare. Speculation over what Eyes Wide Shut even was hit such a fevered pitch that in December 1998, Howard Stern did a segment about a daily news item claiming that Harvey Keitel had been fired because, to quote a Village Voice summary, Keitel was filming a masturbation scene with Nicole Kidman and ended up ejaculating in her hair, prompting an enraged Nicole to demand Keitel's dismissal. The Voice's Peter Bronstein went on to explain that this gossip, which he acknowledged was denied roundly by all parties, fit perfectly into, quote, a 1998 news environment in which ejaculate featured prominently. He may be referring to the use of errant semen in that summer's comedy blockbuster, There's Something About Mary. But he's definitely also referring to the unlikely importance to national politics and world history of Monica Lewinsky's gap dress stained in an encounter with President Bill Clinton. And though the Keitel story was laughable and had no relationship to anything we see in the completed film, Bronstein's contextualization of it was itself a mirror of Eyes Wide Shut in that it enshrined a definitive moment in the killing off of what remained of the 60s sexual revolution. For Democrats and supporters of Clinton, this was at best a facepalm moment, demanding a pivot towards the resolutely sexless Al Gore. For Republicans, it was, to use a bad pun, a wet dream, proof of the decadence and mendacity of the president of the opposite party who had gotten elected by harnessing the spirit of 60s liberalism and an opportunity for them to offer up Christian conservatism as a redemptive solution. A year later, when MovieLine released its 1999 sex issue, the film was still a mystery to industry reporters. That issue included two pieces dealing with the film. One was a profile of Thomas Gibson, the Greg from the sitcom Dharma and Greg, who appears in two scenes of Eyes Wide Shut, which Joshua Mooney confidently but erroneously described as a film in which Cruz and Kidman play married psychiatrists who sleep with their patients and delve into New York's sexual underworld. Elsewhere in the magazine, in a preview of the coming year of sex on screen, MovieLine made a more accurate prediction about Eyes Wide Shut. Quote, Nobody really knows what we're gonna see when Kubrick is finished. We'll just say this. It is about sex. It has lots of sex in it. And it is directed by Stanley Kubrick, which means that the sex will probably be interesting, but it will not be romantic and may well not be erotic either. In June 1997, Michael Fleming at Variety estimated that the Eyes Wide Shut shoot would wrap September 1st, 300 days after it began. But when September rolled around, the trade reported that the shoot would stretch over a full calendar year, although the cast did get five weeks off at Christmas, three at Easter, two weeks over the summer, and a day so that Tom and Nicole could attend Princess Diana's funeral. Then, in December 1997, another variety story went like this. Though the duration of Kubrick's movie was first reported in this column as a curiosity, it has become arguably the longest shoot ever involving a major star and studio. Cruz and Kidman will be spending their second Christmas on the shoot. In February 1998, a pair of film restorers wrote to Fleming to insist that, in fact... Lawrence of Arabia still held the record for the longest film shoot ever, at 17 months with a six-week break. Eyes Wide Shut was 15 months with an eight-week break, but then Kubrick called for the post-Jennifer Jason Lee reshoots. In the summer of 1998, people tallied that the shoot had stretched over 19 months and counting. Although in fact, the counting was over. Photography did wrap for good that June. When Eyes Wide Shut was certified as the longest shoot ever by the Guinness Book of Records, the record was cited at 15 months with an unbroken 46-week shoot. This record seems to only account for principal photography. Originally slated for release in December 1998, that month Warner Brothers moved the release date to July 16th, 1999, where it would stay. None of this was particularly new for Kubrick. As the LA Times reported in September, 1998, quote, in 1967, an MGM executive reportedly asked whether 2001, four years in the making, referred to the title of his movie or when the film would be completed. Given the protracted shoot time, Kubrick finished post-production relatively quickly. After about eight months hold up at home working on the edit, he told Warner Brothers he was ready for an extremely exclusive screening to be attended only by Tom, Nicole, and WB execs Terry Semel and Bob Daly. Kubrick was so nervous about keeping the content of the film under wraps that he had an assistant hand deliver the print to New York and ask the projectionist to turn his back to the screen. The foursome loved the film and felt it was ready for release. As Semmel later said, most filmmakers show their early cut, the director's cut, to the studio. The studio gives input and then the director makes changes. That wasn't the case with Stanley. When Stanley showed you the movie, his cut, that was the finished movie. There are just a handful of directors who can do that. Steven Spielberg is one, Clint Eastwood is another. It's because they've proven over the years that one cut is all that's necessary. When Kubrick heard the good news from the screening, he called John Calley, his old executive on Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon, and The Shining, who now ran Sony Pictures. As Calley remembered, I said, good for you. This is a victory for the old guys, to which Kubrick responded, Old guys, I've never felt better. I don't feel like an old guy, and you better not either. Five days after that screening, Stanley Kubrick died at home of a heart attack. Semmel professed to be shocked because he had just talked to Kubrick on the phone a few hours earlier. We were laughing, having a great time, he said. We were all on cloud nine. The L.A. Times obituary of Kubrick quoted Spielberg, Oliver Stone, Cruz and Kidman, who said he was like family to us, and Semmel of Warner Brothers, who said, needless to say, Stanley was not a fitness guy, and British critic Alexander Walker, who said, his films were metaphors for the times and fears and feelings we live in and among. Walker was quoted as an objective expert on Kubrick's films but he was also a friend of the Kubrick family. It was in the latter capacity that he had been shown Eyes Wide Shut after Kubrick's death. So when Walker published a review of Eyes Wide Shut, three months after the director died, three weeks before its release in the US, and two weeks before most American journalists were allowed to see it, Stanley's wife, Christiane Kubrick, was said to be devastated by the betrayal. It didn't matter that the review was a rave, with Walker praising its ability to conjure a strange atmosphere from this feeling of contemporary America overlaid by fin de siècle decadence. The problem was that he went on to describe many scenes of the film in microscopic detail. He also, somewhat misleadingly, suggested that Nicole Kidman's naked body was a major feature of the film, writing, "'Exposure and denial, invitation and retreat, "'this extraordinary movie's recurring motif "'is encapsulated in the nudity of its female star.'" Walker's review was published in an English newspaper, but the Kubrick camp's reaction to it was widely reported in the U.S. After this, the Eyes Wide Shut team tried to exert even more control over the messages communicated about the movie. Cruise publicity firm PMK asked broadcast journalists at the movie's press junket to sign a waiver, agreeing to show the publicists rough cuts of any interviews they plan to air and to destroy any unused footage of Cruise and to guarantee, quote, The interview and the program will not show the artist in a negative or derogatory manner. Some outlets were willing to play along, according to the LA Times, because celebrities such as Cruise attract TV audiences and sell magazines. No kidding. Multiple publications put Cruise and or Kidman on the cover of their magazines, with headlines such as, The Sexiest Movie Ever, which appeared on the cover of Us. Much of this coverage was written and published before any journalists actually saw the movie. Before filing his Kidman cover story for Vogue, John Powers at least got a chance to see the 90 second teaser trailer unveiled at the exhibitors convention show West in March, which consisted of the scene from the film in which Kidman and Cruz nakedly embraced to the Chris Isaac song. Based on this clip, Powers suggested that the film would give viewers a near pornographic insight into this real celebrity marriage. Because it's them, Tom and Nicole, upon the screen, the clip gives you a nice voyeuristic frisson, which is doubtless what its creator intended, Powers wrote, adding that the total press lockdown insisted on by Kubrick during production resulted in the couple becoming, quote, comfortable enough to throw themselves into the film's dangerous, psychosexual subject matter, a process that Kidman hints had reverberations in the couple's off-screen life. Time Magazine called it a haunting masterpiece on a cover that included images of Tom and Nicole embracing topless. Though Richard Schickel, who wrote the cover story, seems to have been allowed to see the movie before publishing a sidebar column devoted to debunking false reports about the movie, still played it coy about rumors that the real life couple get intimate on screen. Quote, our mouths are wide shut on this one. You'll have to go see it for yourself. What are people expecting from this film? Mused Liz Smith in a column published a month before Eyes Wide Shut was released. Graphic, truly graphic sex scenes between Cruise and Kidman? The now infamous teaser for the movie notwithstanding, I doubt it. Neither star has seemed particularly inclined to push the sex and nudity envelope. My gut feeling is that there'll be a lot less sex and eyes wide shut than anticipated. Ultimately, there was less visible sex in the version of the film released in the U.S. than Kubrick had intended. Next week, in part two of our story, we will talk about what happened when critics actually saw Eyes Wide Shut and learned that CGI had been employed after Kubrick's death to turn an NC-17 rating into an R. We'll talk about how audiences responded to the movie, its impact on the marriage of Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, and where Hollywood eroticism went from there. We'll wrap up the story of erotic 90s by looking back at a star who featured prominently in both erotic 80s and erotic 90s as a gateway to discussing how, to paraphrase Chinatown, even whores get respectable if they last long enough. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. The show is written, produced, and narrated by Karina Longworth. That's me. This season is edited and mixed by Evan Viola. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And if you go to our website, you must You can find show notes for this and every other episode, which include lists of our sources, and much more. Did you know that we have merch at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop? You can buy You Must Remember This hats, totes, coffee mugs, and t-shirts, as well as copies of my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes's Hollywood, signed by me. Get yours today at youmustrememberthispodcast.com slash shop. At patreon.com slash Karina Longworth, you can support the podcast, get lots of bonus You Must Remember this content, including scripts or transcripts of our full archive, and some glimpses into other aspects of my life. Now, top tier subscribers to Patreon can hear ad-free episodes. You can also subscribe to ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts. Proceeds from Patreon go to help pay all the people who work on the show named above. Finally, subscribing or rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts can really help other people find it. So if you want to spread the word, that's a great way to do it. We'll be back next week with an all new tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night.